with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. As we look at God's word today, the title for this message is New Life, New Purity. And we're going to be reading from verse 1 through to the end of verse 14. So let's let God address us from his word. And let us prepare to be addressed by God. Because that's what this word is. It's him breathing words to us. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness in your foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. But anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Lord, I have come to you many times in secret. And so I now come to you in public and cry out again for this message of the these people in front of you. Lord, would you give us ears to hear this morning? Lord, would you draw alongside us and encounter us and seek to care for us as a faithful father? Lord, would these folk hear your words? Lord, would you challenge me afresh? Lord, I may be pastor and I may be preacher, but when it comes to your word, I'd sit in the seats just like everybody else. And so, Lord, minister to us, help us, engage with us. Holy Spirit, have your way amongst us. And would we go on changed and affected afresh by how great and how kind you are to me. You know, whether we like it or not, we live in a world, in a world that in all reality is sex-obsessed and sex-saturated. It's just part of living, particularly in the Western world, is the way it is. We're in McDonald's about 
to guy, and in the McDonald's in the UK, we don't have any TVs. But in the McDonald's here in Sydney, you have lots of TVs up everywhere. And so I hadn't particularly noticed that until I realised it was effectively MTV. And my nine-year-old boy was certainly enjoying the view of a certain image on the screen. So at that point, I put my hands over his eyes, at which point Emma put her hands over my eyes, and we realised <laughs> this isn't ideal. I mean, we love McDonald's. I mean, this is quality food at McDonald's. It's really <laughs> probably what we'll be eating in heaven most of the time, and I can't wait. But McDonald's here, that the images in front of us are, are unhelpful. And yet people barely notice. We're so self-saturated in our communities that we barely notice the soft porn that is often on the screen in front of us as we emerge. It's not just in McDonald's these days. In conversations, in films, on the television, in books, papers, magazines, in music. Listen to the words. What was it they had all these things? Oh yes, I remember. Oh boy. We're driving along in the car. We bought the, the album. Album? There it is. And so we ended up full blast. And then we're singing along with it, and these are children doing it. Until we, we, we turn it down, we noticed Lydia was still singing. We said, Well, where did you hear that from? She was singing, Your sex is on fire! <laughs> and then, okay, if my four year old is singing, Your sex is on fire. We're just so used to it. We're so used to it in our music and the internet, on television, in adverts, that we barely even notice what's coming out of our mouths and what is going into our eyes and in our hearts. And as Christians, then, it's a hard place to live, eh? The world is a hard place to live now. Because as Christians, we're not immune to the temptations of lust, we're not immune to the temptations of impurity, and we're certainly not immune to the temptations of sexual sin. And the Ephesians were the same. So when God is writing to the Ephesians and Paul is penning this letter to them, He's aware that for these guys too, this is a full-on, hardcore city to live in. See, the main religion in Ephesus at this time related into the worship of Diana. Diana was a multi-breasted god of fertility. And so the way you worshipped Diana was you would go to the, to the temple uh, where there would be ritual prostitution. That would be your worship. And that would be the main thing going on in the middle of Ephesus. So in the middle of Ephesus, Westfield didn't exist. There was a temple where ritual prostitution would be, going, would be going on as the absolute norm, and people would be encouraged to play a part in that as the absolute norm of the worship of Diana. This was a city where sexual perversions of all kinds were encouraged and applauded and actually enjoyed, and you were considered strange to not be taking part in them. So how kind of the Lord then, our Father, to take the time to pull a seat next to the Ephesians, and to pull a seat up next to us to talk to us about our sexuality. And that's exactly what he does in this text. See, if you want to know what this text is about, in a sentence it's about this. It's about a Father God who dearly loves us and cares for us enough to pull a seat up beside us to talk to us about our sexuality and to talk to us about our walking love. See, God loves us. And so these words aren't just some abstract, written by some god of wonders in the middle of nowhere. 
sons of the great black father who knows us, who knows how we made, and this morning, in his grace, he pulls up a seat alongside Southern Grace Church Sydney to address us about the issue of purity and sexuality and the necessity to walk in love. You see, I think so often we misunderstand and forget the simple point that these words are truly God's words. We hear every week the pastor telling us that then Paul said this, and Paul said that, and Paul wrote that. That's true. Paul did write these things. He did indeed pen these things. But behind Paul is God. That's why in 2 Timothy 3.16, we read the words that all scripture is God-breathed. Every item that came from the pen of Paul was first breathed out by God, exhaled from God as he seeks to communicate to us as his children. And it's only then that two little words in verse 1 begin to completely come alive to us. Listen, let's look. Therefore, be imitators of God as, notice it, as beloved children. See, we can very easily skip over those words as if, well, tender moment, but we shouldn't skip over those words. We should pause on those words. He's writing to us as beloved children. See, folks, you're here today. If you are a Christian, you are here today as his beloved children. You want to know the way he sees you? You want to know the way he thinks about you? You want to know the way he feels about you, Southern Grace Church? This is how he sees you, as his beloved children. See, he loves you as his own. He so values you that he went through the agonies of Calvary with his son so that he could draw you to him and adopt you into his family. He so cares for you and loves you that he sings over you. So loves you that he cares for you. He knows your frame, he knows how you're made, he knows your thinking before he arrives, he knows your fears, he knows your dreams. And as a conclusion, he feels about us and sees us as beloved children. And I think it's so important that we slow on that point. Because my, my biggest challenge as a pastor, since I've been a pastor, is simply this helping people understand that, not only in their minds, but in their hearts, in a way that they experience that, in a way that those truths, beloved child, begin to function and to feel in such a way in their life as well. See, the reality is there are just so many people in Christianity that feel that maybe in some way God is tolerating them, that God is putting up with them. So there's this other individual, they look around in any local church and they see lots of other people that they consider to indeed be God's beloved children. But then they look back at themselves and they think, listen, I'm like these, but I doubt it. I'm just sitting at the back. I'm just hanging with God's beloved children. And so they don't personalize it. They don't think about this wonderful truth of being a beloved child of God as working into their own lives. And they feel in some way that God is tolerating them. But that's not but that feeling of toleration is indeed a horrible one. And I have felt it many times in my life. Some of you will have heard the story about my infamous rugby match 
for those of you that haven't, I will tell you, I'm about 11 years old, and I was attending the Spalding Grammar School for the first time, and they decided that we were all going to play rugby, which was great, apart from that I was a midget, and everybody else was huge. And I remember we started the game thinking, oh, please, Lord, why can we not play netball, or why do we have to do rugby? And clearly they decided they were going to pick on the smallest, which was, which was me. And so they decided I was going to be a winger, which basically means too small to play everywhere else. And so they put me right on the edge, and so I was standing on the line at the edge. I'm completely uninterested in trying to even play this game. And the problem was, although I was over here, I, I wasn't able, I was a little isolated over here. So if the ball came over here, I knew I was really going to be in trouble. And the game was proceeding very nicely. I was completely not involved in the game, and so I was quite enjoying it. So it's a little cold out here, but never mind, we'll be over soon and we can all go home. Then the, the worst thing took place. The ball was kicked from my team over towards me. Now, I had a strange feeling of panic at that point, but I realized I've got to do something. It was during the fear of running while I could realize I can't fool that I haven't seen it, so I'm going to have to at least run after the ball. So I ran after the ball, I proceeded to pick up the ball, and then I picked up the ball, and for some strange moment, I thought that I could actually score a try. This was a bad idea to actually think of actually trying to score a try. But I picked up the ball and I was going to run to the opposite end to score a try. And I saw something before me which, which defied belief. It was a boy of 11 that looked like a 44 year old. <laughs> There's always one in every class. There's some mutant gene that's come about. He's got a beard. He looks like Moses. <laughs> he was making him white. He looked like a dwarf. You know, he's just a huge wall of meat. And then there's me. So there's this wall of meat now running towards me, and there's, there's me now skipping towards him. I'm going to put him off. Throw a little gag along the way and move around him. Well, what can I do? So I put, my, I put my head down, I continued to run, and I knew this was going to be a painful experience. So just before the impact arrived, I shut my eyes, because I knew this would be the best way to deal with the impact. So I run it, I shut my eyes, and I, as I shut my eyes, I had this strange sensation of floating. It's never happened before. It hasn't happened since. But I shut my eyes and, and the impact wasn't that painful, but I felt like I was floating for quite a long time. And then, then I felt like maybe it's not just floating. I feel like I'm moving. Backwards. <laughs> so I opened my eyes and that was exactly what was happening. This man mountain. I had basically run into his arms, at which point he was now carrying the ball and me, <laughs> the other way. Now, clearly I hadn't rolled it very far, and he only had to run about 20 yards, but he did run 20 yards with me in his hands and scored a try for his team on the line trial on I'm 11 years old. This is like the first week of school. This is not good. There were all these boys looking at me and I was trying to be cool. I didn't look very cool in that moment. And as my face was in the dirt and I picked it up, I looked around to all my new school friends and collectively I just saw this. <laughs> Followed by this. <laughs> and then I walked off. And I went back to the line by myself. I felt tolerated. I just Oh, no, I've had it for the rest of my school career. I'm dead if everybody's going to remember this. But they did. 
for the rest of their lives. And I just felt completely <coughs> tolerant of it. I know I'm on the team. I know I'm really fit. I know I'm a part of this group because the teacher said I was on the team. Thanks. And I'm not very good. Sweet kick. Bit of a black sheep. Not even very good at the game. So I felt tolerant. We can bring that mentality into Christianity as well. I feel like that in church. Because hey, I know we've had some great church that you know you started for me. But I'm not very good. And I'm not really fit. And I'm not even very good at this game. And slowly but surely you feel like maybe God's tolerant of you. And you don't really feel like you fit. And you know what? That is a complete and utter lie of the enemy. You do fit. You are incredibly loved by the maker of heaven and earth and his beloved children. How do I know? Because that's what the book of Ephesians is all about. Before there was even time, he chose you. Knowing that you might not feel like you fully fit, he chose you anyway. He knew your name and he brought you forth. At the right time, he sent his son to die on a cross and a bloody mess in your place. To bring you as a child back to himself. Because he wants you. And he wants your forgiveness. At the right time, he made it possible for you to be forgiven of your sin. For it to be removed as far as the east is from the west. To be adopted into the very family of God where he can care for you. And love you. And oversee your coming and your going. Both now and forever and forevermore. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. The deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You can read about it in chapter 1. Because he wants you to know that you are his. You are his treasured possession. You are the apple of his eye. You are his child. And then he writes you this book saying, listen, as my child, take this on board because I love you. These aren't rules for you, but this is a book to help me reveal myself to you and to help you understand how it can go well for you in a world that is broken and burst. See, no one is being tolerated in this room. If you're a Christian, God loves you as a beloved child. And so right here, Ephesians chapter 5, he pulls up a seat alongside us, not to tell us off, but to say, listen up. You're my beloved children. And because you're my beloved children, I want to talk to you about sexuality and purity of walking in love. See, folks, sexuality is often something that can wreck people's lives. It can wreck churches' lives. It can wreck married lives. It can wreck friendship lives. It can wreck your own life. And so how kind of the Lord to take the time to indicate to us as his children how we're able to operate in the midst of sexuality. And the two things that I want to draw out of it this morning, only two points. Number one, the plea. And number two, practice. So having established that this is motivated by God's love for us, his care for us as his children, as his family, let's first of all look at then the plea. And the headline where it comes in verse 1 and 2 is he simply says this, he commands us in two ways. He commands us to imitate him and he commands us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the command on our lives as he draws the seat alongside us is, listen, are we to imitate me 
I don't want you to walk in love as Christ did. You think, okay, God, all right, that seems quite broad. And he agrees. So he carries on in verse 3 and 4 to give us very specifics of what that means in terms of our sexuality. Let's read it together, verse 3 and 4. It says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Okay, verses 3 and 4 have some very clear specifics for us from God the Father to help us as his children. In just two verses, there's six things, six things that he says for us as Christians should not even be mentioned among us and that are completely and utterly out of place among us. Of those six things, there are three specific areas that are covered by him. So three that he's covering actions, covering his thoughts, he's covering speech. The first two, sexual immorality and impurity, are actions. Okay, so let's look at actions first of all, which is sexual immorality and impurity. When he's mentioning those two words, what he's basically all about is this. Anything, anything at all that happens sexually outside of marriage or distorts God's gift of sex within the confines of marriage, that's included in sexual immorality and impurity. Okay? Within those two words, anything that can distort God's gift of sex within marriage or sexual immorality, i.e. sexual intercourse outside of marriage, he's saying, listen, those things, they should have no place for us as Christians. They should not have any place in our lives at all. You know, the Greek word translated as sexual immorality is pornea. Where we get the word pornography from there. But back then it didn't mean looking at pictures. It meant actually performing an act. And pornographic sexual immorality. That's what it was by nature. And impurity then really takes pornia and just widens the lens on it. He just pulls back the curtain more. He says, okay, well, pornia, that's sexual immorality. Uh, but hang on, it's not just that. It's impurity. Just widen the lens on what you're not to be doing as Christians any type of immorality, anything that can distort God's gift of sex with inside marriage. So homosexuality, pornography, and then the sexual acts that often go, go with that, things like adultery, God's clear. That should have no place among you. Even my children. That should have no place. He then talks about our thoughts. That's what the word covetous means. That word covetousness, he's not only talking about our actions there, he's actually talking about our thoughts, things that are going on in our heads. Now, often when you think of coveting, you don't think of sexuality, right? Yeah, coveting, isn't that when we're grieving after something? Yeah. But in this context, Paul is saying, yeah, but it's not just grieving after something, it's greed that relates to a sexual fighting. So it's greed related to sex. You see, it's not wrong, guys. And please don't misunderstand this, because I think this is where Christians get a bad rep. It's not wrong to desire to have sexual experience. That's a good thing. So if you feel that urge, praise God. Let's thank God for that. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes in Christian circles, sex is a dirty word. That's insane. Sex is a wonderful gift to be joined in marriage by two individuals and enjoyed within the context of marriage. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a God-given thing. And we want to teach on that at some point. 
Because this is something that should be retained within marriage and should be heavily enjoyed within marriage as a gift. It's good. But what God is saying here is, you know what, though? Coveting is when you take that, that desire for sexual experience and make an idol out of it. It's when you greed at it insatiably. It's when you want it so much that it drives your life. It drives your thinking. It drives your time. It's something that you get to the point where you think, I just can't do without it. You begin to be a worshipper of sexual experience. <coughs> and God's saying, you can't do that. Because Christians actually have no place for us. Because that's replacing God as our worship with sex. It's the thing you just got to have. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied not in sex, but in Him. And the moment we move off into something else, we're holding idols in our midst. And what Paul is saying here is we don't want our idols in this place. So we go as a single man and we just, I just got to have it. I just can't help it. Yeah, you can. Otherwise, you're an idol worshiper. That's not right for a Christian. That should have no place for us as Christians. But even that isn't enough for Paul. And he talks to us about our actions and our thoughts. But verse 4, he wants to talk to us about our talk. It's a filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, all those different things. Paul wants to make it clear to us, you know, for us as believers, they're completely out of place. They should have no place amongst us. John Stott, in his wonderful commentary on Ephesians, says all three of these areas refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. And he's right. It's a sexual obscenity, grating jokes. Dreadful language, sexual innuendo, those are all things that God's saying, you know, for us as his children, they really shouldn't have any place in our lives. And that's a challenge, eh? Because if you work in an office, you're going to hear that type of conversation all the time. I used to work in an office with about 2,000 people in it, and I was one of the managers in the office, and the average age of the office was 22. Monday mornings were interesting, listening to everybody's conquests on the weekends. And if you grow up in Europe, it's a big deal. Europe, if you think your TV's bad, you want to be a European. It's a big deal in Europe. The whole sexual stuff is a big deal. And so growing up and spending time in an office where you've got all these young people wanting to tell you what you're going to put on the weekend, what are you going to do? It's what we see on chat shows as well, isn't it? You know, some of the people that we like, and they put a little sexual innuendo out there, and then they smile at the camera, and we're just meant to go, ooh, ooh, it's good for you. But actually, God's saying, that ain't right. That's crude joking, that's foolish talk, that's filthiness. But for us as believers, that's completely out of place. Why? Well, because that's the things that my son died for. Oh. So we can't get pleasure out of something that Jesus died for. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. They're completely out of place. And you know what? If you begin to examine this text further and you begin to really delve into it, you begin to realize just how out of place these things really are. In verse 4, we discover that we are his children. 
His son died so that we could be adopted into the very family of a holy God. In verse, four, in verse 3, we hear that we are his saints. In verse 11, we hear that these things always lead to bad fruit. They promise so much, but they deliver so little. And God says, listen, so don't get involved. Come away from these things. And then there is a seriously sobering warning in verse 5 and 6. Let's look. It says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's a full-on warning, Scripture. That is a big deal. Now, what he's not saying there is that Christians therefore can't fall in these areas. Okay, that's what he's saying. And King David has got a bit of an issue. People do fall in these areas. But King David is a good example of a man who was a man after God's own heart, who got into the wrong place at the wrong time and blew it in the wrong. And then he came back to a place of repentance and continued on with the Lord. Christians can and do blow in this area of sexual temptation and sexual immorality. They do. But what Paul is saying, nonetheless, which is a warning, is that you know what, though, guys? If you can be involved in these things ongoingly and unrelentingly and never repentingly, then beware. Because that is not the lifestyle of a son of God. That's the lifestyle of a son of disobedience. You see, I've heard so much talk since arriving in Sydney about different folks, different friends that people have had, and they're not around anymore because they're backslidden, and they're not around anymore because they're backslidden. The Bible doesn't talk much of backslidden Christianity. Talks of sheep and goats. And so I'm not saying that there isn't times when people blow it in their lives. But if that is ongoing and unrepentant and unrelenting, let us not reach out to them as believers, let us reach out to them as non believers. Because the Bible here is saying, you know what, beware because they're sons of disobedience. They're living their lives ongoingly. You know, I grew up in a Pentecostal background, so you tend to refer back to decisions people made when they're four. And even though they're living with somebody now, he says, yes, but I met with them, they shouldn't. I'm sure they're going to come back and go at some point. Maybe it wasn't a real decision. Maybe it was some moment where they just thought, oh, I love God and I'll go for that. But was that redeeming faith? Was that faith when they were regenerate, that the Holy Spirit began to live in their lives so that they wouldn't just be spending their lives living for themselves, but there would be a compelling in their heart to live for Jesus, that we see bearing fruit in their lives, which is the book of James is all about. Oh, that puts a bit of a different perspective. Maybe they're not Christians. Yes! So let's reach out to them. Very different. And that is the warning that Paul is saying here. He's not saying, listen, as soon as somebody blows it sexually, they clearly don't believe it. What he is saying, be very careful. And for you, church, be very careful. You're living in sexual immorality or covetous. And you just spend time in filthiness or foolish talk, true joking. I have no problem with that. This is the divine assessment. You're not a child of God. You're a child of disobedience. So you need to repent. And you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and King to operate accordingly. That's the call of Scripture. And so as Christians, 
Paul is clear that these things shouldn't even be known among us. Let there be not even a hint of these things in any given local church, including sovereign grace church. Let's look down at the practice. One of the things I love about scripture, particularly the way Paul writes under the inspiration of God, is he, he keeps things practical for us. So he doesn't just say, okay, well, stop it. You think, okay. He gives us some practices. He actually gives us six practices, but I'll just find out there for you. Six things that he helps us see. You know what? This is how you stop it then. This is how you live lives and not even a hint. This is how, by God's grace, the things that as God sits there communicating to us, he says, okay, well, these six things are for you. As my children, they're going to help you walk in love and walk in purity in your life. Number one, identify sexual lies and fight them with the sword of the Spirit. Identify sexual lies and fight them with the sword of the Spirit. Verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because he knows people can deceive you with empty words. Say, well, don't let it happen, because people will try. Whether that be people in real life, whether that be people on the TV or people on the internet, people will try and deceive you with empty words. So let no one deceive you. What's the remedy? Well, he mentions it in Ephesians 6, verse 17. It's the sword of the Spirit. See, this book is not some lifeless book written by an old guy for middle-aged people. Okay? That's not what this is. This is a sword. This is full-on armor. This is, this is full-on. This book is incredibly powerful in and of itself because it's God-breathed and it's got its sales. Everything that comes out of here is God's words personally. And so when we identify sexual lies, we've got to bring this book to bear on it. So we identify the lie. Lust is no big deal. Ever been tempted to do that? I'm not hurting anyone. Or I even know. Just me and you guys. No one knows. Lust is no big deal. We pull out Job 31.11 for that. It says, For lust is a shameful sin, a crime that should be punished. It is a devastating fire that destroys hell that would wipe out everything I own. Okay, well, that puts a little bit of a shame spell on my lust being no big deal. What about this life? Well, there's no real fuss here. I'm not hurting anyone. Or we pull out Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8 for that. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. For the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What about them with a lie that they just can't help it? That they're really sexually minded off. You see that on TV all the time. Some of you know, celebrities booking themselves into sex rehab. I can't help it. You know, it's a disease. And then you start to think, oh, that's what people need. That's it's a disease. I can't help it. It's like having a broken leg. It's just this disease. I just can't help it. I look at all these girls, I want to sleep with them. And then I just can't help but do it because it's a disease. What? We pull out 1 Thessalonians 4 for that. Verse 3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. He 
we have already told you or warned you. There are so many lies out there, so many things that will seek to deceive us, so many things that will seek to make no big deal. Maybe even today, as you hear me talking about filthiness or crude joking or foolish joking, you think, oh, they make a bit of a fuss. That's a lie of the enemy. It's so, we're like a fish in the water that's so used to it that we say, I don't think so bad. So the sexual lies that come to us, when we identify them, we have to fight them with the sword of the Spirit. If I can talk today in verse 6. Number two, cultivate thankfulness towards God for the season he has you in. Verse 4. Real strange, it says this. It says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And instead, let there be thanksgiving. Striking and beautiful object I offer. I mean, okay, so we'll, right, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, and all okay, I'll stop that. And what am I putting on? Thankfulness. It just seems a bit strange when you first come across it. You think, well, why don't you say, like, you know, put on holiness or put on purity? I get that. I'm in the zone for those things. But why thankfulness? Well, it's when you stop and you meditate on it longer. You realize why thankfulness. See, covetousness by very nature is saying, Lord, what you've given me in my season of life sucks. It's rubbish. I'm having no sex. This isn't working out. Why am I still single? I'm sure I should have been married by now. What is going on with this? What's the problem? You clearly made me like this, so what can I do but look? And what Paul is saying You've got to stop it. You've got to stop looking at the Creator, moaning about all the things you haven't got. That's coveting. And you've got to turn and look to the Creator and start to give thanks for all the things you have got. And when you start doing that, you realize you've got an awful lot. If God wanted you to enjoy sexual experience at this point in time in your life, He would be supplying that for you. Because He's a gracious, good and kind father. And if he's not, that's because right now he has more for you than that. He has other things he wants to teach you. Other things he wants to help you with. Other things he wants to satisfy you with. Other things that he wants you to grow in and understand and grasp in your life. So the issue isn't to put off filth and put on purity. To put off filth and put on thankfulness. Spend time cultivating thankfulness towards God. Number three. Where possible, remove sexual temptations from your life. Verse 7, after talking to us about the sons of disobedience and the way they operate, he says, therefore, do not associate with them. And I put in there the words wherever possible, because we can't be foolish with it, okay? Because if you take this too seriously, and too, you know, word for word, well, no one's going to work tomorrow, and no one's going to have the next week, just in case. You know, it's going to be a nightmare. It's not going to work. You know what happens? We all become moans. <coughs> we have to. We have to draw back off and always wear the same thing just so to avoid any type of temptation towards sexual encounter. That's not the answer. Remember, this letter was penned by Paul. The same one who said, listen, you need to do all things to all men so that by all means you win some. Behind him, it was exiled by God. The one who took on flesh 
and then hung out with prostitutes at weddings and tax collectors and difficult people, and went to their parties or went to their different adventures because he wanted to be famous. He wanted to win it himself. The example of Paul and Jesus was not some Christian living privately in a ghetto, was it? That isn't what they did. And so we must insert the words there wherever possible. There are times in our lives when we need to be in situations because that's life. But at the same time, we must do all we can to remove wherever possible sexual temptations from our lives. And folks, this doesn't just mean people, okay? This doesn't just mean people that are tempting to us or speak in a way that is unhelpful for us. I think it really means anyone and anything that does indeed deceive us with empty words. So that might be the TV, or the films, or the music, or magazines, or books, or the internet, or whatever it be. You know, for me, some years ago, it was friends, as in the films, not as in the TV, friends. You know, people think, oh, that's harmless, it's not like that, is it? Yeah, but it wasn't helpful for me. You think, well, are you saying you're talking about the friends? No, I'm not saying that at all. You probably be quiet. For me, it was a problem. See, when I was 18 years old, growing up in a small country town, and I arrived at university and realized there were girls and beer and stuff. And, oh, 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 I've been before. And at the same time, I'm watching Friends. And I'm getting quite into Friends. And I'm just thinking, man, I'm like, this is not life I want. Look, you get to go out with any girl you want. You get to sleep with any girl you want. Everybody thinks it's great. You all dress great, you all get apartments, you all earn lots of money, and there's no accountability. This is great! So I think I might get my wife to marry that and to, to mirror that in the world. Maybe that's just me, and I'm basic. But for me, that was attractive. That lifestyle, I thought, I, I want to live it up like they do. And so I'm sure we can. It looks so enticing. And for me, it was so tempting. The bad association for me in that season was the city's friends. See, that was not leading me towards loving good deeds. That was leading me towards sexual immorality or wasting my life on impurity. And covetousness to the extreme. Folks, we need to be wise about what we make and who we make associations with. I speak to some people sometimes and they say, well, you know what, Dale, I've just got a real problem with lust at the moment. And you say, okay, well, join the rest of the men in the group. Any specifics? Well, yes, I can't stop looking at the internet inappropriately. Okay, well, when do you do that? It's always about 12 p.m. Okay, got a radical idea for you. What's that? Stop looking at the internet at 12 p.m. Thanks for coming. I mean, seriously, sometimes we just get ourselves into situations we think, how do you get it? What, what is that? You're making an association with something that is so tempting to you. Let it go. Move it on. It's not a God-given right to watch TV, to eat TV. If the TV is causing you to sin, smash it up and throw it out. Oh, I can't do that. Yes, you can. If the internet is causing you to sin, instead of putting it in your bedroom, put it in the living room in front of the whole family. You'll find your, your tapping changes on the keyboard. It's difficult. Getting all my music is causing me to sin. Well, put it like this. Only play things that you'd be willing to play in the generation's room. You don't want to all be willing to do that. Maybe it's not helpful for you either. Listen, these are not rules, okay? So please do not misunderstand. Because these things can be taken out of context. 
and misunderstood. I, I don't like what we do. And, and if you're a favorite Pokemon's friend, I'm trying to convince you that. I don't mind that. But think through for yourself. Is there anything in my life that I've made an association with that is actually egging me on to my sexual temptations, that is guarding me in an unhelpful way to be impure? If that's the case, get rid of it. Now, some of you, even now, are thinking, this is a bit far. This is a bit radical. Well, Matthew 18 is a bit far. Jesus looks in the eye and says, if your eye causes you to sin, then tear it out. Jesus Christ, gentle mind. No. If your eye causes you to sin, then tear it out. That's four. If your TV is causing you to sin, then tear it out. If your internet is causing you to sin, then tear it out. If you keep getting magazines, and that very magazine you're tempted to flip through in an inappropriate way, I've got a radical idea. Stop buying the darn magazine, okay? Just go crazy. Stop getting it. There are other magazines in the world. Let it go. Why? Because you're a child of God. You're a saint. You've been called by God to reflect him in the world, and these things will only ever bear bad fruit in your life. So let it go. Number four, walk in the light by confessing your sins to one another. Verse 8 says it this way. It says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. So walk as children of light. Now one of the functional truths of Christianity is simply this. Lone rangers are dead rangers. Okay? That's the way it works in life. Lone rangers are dead rangers. Have you ever seen any nature programs at all? I mean, I love nature programs. I only like ones that can play. You know, they're crossing the river that's filled with crocodiles. That's always great. Isn't it? But which ones always get beaten off? Ones by themselves. The ones that get sidelined by themselves. It's the same way around animals. It's always the poor antelopes. Well, you see the same happening with lions. And they manage to get one off. And when they get one off, this bad boy is jumped on and he's dead. It's the same in Christianity. Lone rangers are dead rangers. One of the things that we see actually radically in the book of Ephesians, and actually radically in the entire New Testament, which is why God says, listen, when you get saved, get yourself into a family. Because lone rangers are dead. Get saved. There are people that know you, who love you, who can hold you accountable, who can rejoice with you, who can weep with you. So God's I want to encourage you. If you're going to walk in light like Paul is encouraging us to here, that means bringing things to light. So there's no shortcut for that other than confessing our sins, like it says in James 5.16. Is that hard? Yes. Very hard. Does that mean we shouldn't do it? No, we should. Can we not think of such a thing as hard? You know, there's sometimes we're aware that we've got to push through that and change. That's life, and that's how we're going to grow, that's how we're going to move on. And it's the same in this area. It is hard sharing things with people. We all have the fellowship group, and your leader says, sorry, anybody got anything to share? Okay, so have you been Jesus in the last month? Oh, no, no, no. Then what, anything you've done is not Jesus. This is the part. This is not communicating. You know what? There's nothing wrong with rocking up to a fellowship group, boys in particular. That's a real, but here's the question. Listen, 
If there are two or three crooked in your life which can cause you to be sexually impure, or to be tempting towards you to be sexually impure, what would they do? Let us work it out for each other in this church. Let's pray that God will help us guard against these things and move things around in our lives. That's that's Paul. That's guys doing life together. That's people standing arm in arm, being a band of brothers, and saying, look, let's stick in there together on these things. Because we're family, and we're for you. And he understands what wrong with you. It's usually the guys that are off guard themselves that are the ones that then sit in their office at some point in tears saying, I've blown it. And you go through the motions. How did you get there? And often at some point they share with you, God loves me. And God also loves you. Or you. Or never ask. I don't want to be the guy never asking. But I don't want to be the guy not knowing. But I also want to be the guy I want to encourage you to be men and women that are disclosing. And the people in your life groups and fellowship groups are my leaders. Sometimes we wish we were, but we're not. You have to actually disclose things in my struggles. Men, let's be honest with each other. Is it hard? Yes. It's hard because we're proud. But don't be pressed on others. You want to change? Good. It's going to mean humility. And what does that look like? says it this way. It says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I love that. I love that little phrase. That's like a pastor's dream. What it basically means is, okay, I've thought about everything specific that I could say, so now let's go with this one. Try to discern in every situation what is pleasing to the Lord. The reality is there are so many situations in our lives for men and women who are different, we're made different. There are so many different life situations that we get into, but we can't just identify them all here. But here's the point. Make it your aim to please God in every situation. Make it your aim to try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This could mean taking your hand off the computer mouse or closing your laptop at a certain given time. It could mean putting on the worship music because your mind begins to drift and helpful moments in your, in your life. It can mean walking out the movie, turning off the TV, and no longer buying a specific magazine that you've been buying maybe for years. But ladies, this could mean you taking even longer in the clothes shops than you do now as you seek to discern what is modest. Because I want to care for the brothers in my life. I want to care for the brothers in my church. And so I don't want them coming to church thinking, Oh, 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 that's not helpful. Not helpful for anybody. And particularly when you're worshiping the Lord, that's not helpful. Might be longer in the clothes stores thinking, oh man, what am I going to buy? Get yourself ready to go live in Europe. Everything's short and tight. That's just for men. It takes hours. <laughs> Figure it out. We're going to wear it for guys. This might mean looking and refusing to go to certain places at certain times. That's just life. You know, we can think, oh, I'm free to do anything. You are. At the same time, just because we're free to do it, as Paul says in Corinthians, just because we're free doesn't make it helpful. And there's certain things in our lives, you think, you know what, to go to that place at that time, 
all the renal potential known to man dysfunction. It's okay. So become aware of this and make sure you're in the pre-diabetic situation. Finally, and maybe most importantly, regularly cry out to God for help. You see, I submit to you that our greatest danger in the area of sexuality is not, is probably not open rebellion. I haven't interacted with that too much in the context of local churches. It's rare that you meet somebody that hears a message like this and says, ah, well, stop it. I'm going to do it on my own. That's not common. You don't often hear this open rebellion to, yeah, I see that's God's word, but stuff it. I'm just going to go sleep around anyway. That's not the norm. I think our greatest danger is not open rebellion. I think our greatest danger is slumber and sleep. We live in a world that is sex-obsessed and sex-saturated, and yet we can so easily, as Christians, be prone to slumber and sleep. We just get the climate back. We don't even know. At least we don't think we know. We get fooled into thinking that I don't think it's having an effect on me. Really? more than you think. If you speak to my 40-year-old and seeing your sex is on fire, you'll discover that you have no idea what I mean. But is that helpful articulation when you talk? Remember Amy when she first started school and said, what's sex? Um, what you do when you're in there. But what you practice. You just want to be protected from different situations and different things because they can become but we can grow sleepy and slumbering towards these things. And this is Paul's response to him. Listen, awake. Wake up, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. You live in a world that is sex-saturated. Ephesians, you live in a city and in a place where everybody is having sex with prostitutes, and that is the norm. Guys in Sydney, you live in a city where people are completely sexually promiscuous and they think that is completely normal and completely fine. What is the Christian response? Wake up! You can go into McDonald's and see effectively pornographic things on the screen in front of you. Things that if they had been posted in a pornographic magazine in the 60s, they would have passed and they would have sold the magazines. We've grown, culture has grown so normal to this and we as Christians think this is just normal. What are you meant to do? What are you meant to do? You're meant to wake up and rise from the dead. Why? Because when you realize that we live in this society, we begin to back off and we realize, man, this does affect me. This affects me all the time as a guy. Lord, what am I going to do? At that point, we say, Lord, help me. Please help me. And what does he do? He shines on us. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Hebrews 4 says it this way, wonderfully. Listen, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Is there a weakness that you feel as you pertain to the scripture, that we say, oh, I don't get that. He's able to sympathize with that. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Folks, when we wake up to what happens in our society and we begin to filter through that, yeah, this does affect me, our first point of call then is saying, you know what? Lord, you've broken my heart and I've risen from the dead. Would you shine me? Would you help me? I know you've been tempted as I have been. I know you understand my weaknesses. I'm your child. Please help me and give me grace and help in my time of need. My friends, we can be absolutely assured that we have a Father God who passionately loves us. This isn't written by some cold, far-off God, but this is written by a God who loves you, who's your Father, and loves you enough then to take a seat beside us this morning, Sovereign Grace Church, and say, let me talk to you about your sexuality, and about your purity, and about these things, because they're important. And if you fall in these areas, sometimes it divides churches, but most often it does indeed divide families. And as a pastor, I don't like it when that happens. I don't like it when you're sitting with children on a Tupperware that's gone wrong, picking up almost body parts because you realize that. Therefore, let there not even be a hint of this in there. This has no place. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk, Let it have no place in there. And by the grace of God, then, let us, motivated by love for Him, walk in the love that He wants us to walk. Amen. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you are so thorough. You, you don't just communicate to us as a father in an abstract and distant way, but you sit among us. And you communicate to us in detailed terms. Jesus, thank you for your example. Thank you that as we articulate this morning what we're called to be of this walk in love, our model and example is you. You did this. You managed this. And so how grateful we are that we now have the spirit of Christ then living in us. Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you aid us to live in purity, to walk in love like Jesus did? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 